So, welcome to another episode of Let Me Say This. I am your host, Tony Crystal Walker, and today I have my two favorite, like my two favorite guest hosts. Um, they're both white, so just know that up front. Two of your favorite white people. <laughs> two of my favorite white people. Um, Bryn, Dr. Bryn Welch, who is a professor of philosophy yes. at UAB, and Dr. David Barnhart Jr., I feel like I'm in the presence of Austin. <laughs> Who is my friend and my pastor? And, um, you know, a couple of things. Uh, I've had a lot of experiences over the last couple of weeks. Brandon and I have almost been doing a series. Like, I don't know how many more of these we're going to do. I guess we're going to talk about it until people change, which may be forever. But um, a lot of uh, stuff going on with racism. Uh, I went to a summit last weekend. There was an issue with the racism and people not understanding, you know, what white privilege looked like. Um, just a lot of stuff. So I want to kind of unpack a couple things uh, uh, today. And we may even, yeah, I kind of want to go into that Amber Geiger thing because now we have breaking news that the, the people who killed Joshua Brown have been found. And it was a drug deal. A drug deal gone bad. Like three people left Alexandria, Louisiana to drive to Dallas to buy some weed from him. Mm. The drug deal went bad and he's dead. Mm -hmm. I believe that like. I'm shocked. I'm shocked <laughs> that the witness comes off looking unreliable. Right. Shocked right, right. in my core. Yeah, we'll talk about that because that's, that's bullshit. But anyway, so um, to, to start us off, we talked about um, the, the book White Fragility. And so I want y'all to talk to the audience about what that book is about and what is white fragility. Go for it. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Robin D'Angelo is the author, right? She, um, so it makes a great, uh, great illustration, I think, to help people understand that word fragility is for one thing, people are very fragile about that word because <laughs> fragility, especially like you say, male fragility or something mm -hmm. like that. Well, right. the last thing we want to be is fragile. Yeah. We want to be tough and self-reliant and stuff and, and recognizing that, I think I think what is helpful about it is recognizing there is deep uh, psychological and social pain associated that, that white people need to understand they have mm -hmm. because of racism. And I think oftentimes it, it's that refusal to acknowledge, again, this not to center white people's experience, <laughs> but it's this refusal to acknowledge that there is, that the oppressors have internalized oppression. Mm -hmm. So, and she uses this great illustration, like, uh, someone's pushing a, a grocery cart through a grocery store. Little kid in the grocery cart says, Mommy, look, that man's black. And she goes, shh, shh, shh. Mm -hmm. Like, why, why is she shushing him? And yet, yet all white people know that's a reaction. Yeah. So, so what's going on there? And then kind of probing that, she talks about, def I can't remember all, but talks about defensiveness. You may I'll jump in anytime. <laughs> yeah, no, uh -huh. I, I think... Um, the not to center white people's experiences mm -hmm. is funny to me because I some of the stuff I work in is children's literature and diversity and representation in children's literature. Mm -hmm. And I find myself often saying, like, no, this is good for white kids, too. And I'm, right. it's such a hard case to make because I'm, I, I don't want to be like, and that's why you should do it. Because mm -hmm. the white kids <laughs> need some character development, you know, right. like, but right. so I, Tony and I have talked about this. I kind of worship Beverly Daniel Tatum mm. and she has this similar, she talks first of all about the straightforward 
um, economic cost of not including people in your work circle and not, but she has this, she has this whole chapter on like the social anxiety that white people feel and that white people can right part of white privilege is we can simply avoid it, right? right. Because we can navigate predominantly white neighborhoods and schools and churches. And so you can avoid it, but it also means that then when it comes up, you have no idea mm-hmm. <laughs> what to do with yourself. Um, and I, yeah, I think, I, I think for me, the, the fragility, Tony and I have talked about this, the, the fragility part of it is like white people are raised not to talk about race, mm-hmm. that it's taboo. We say everyone is equal instead of everyone should be equal. Mm-hmm. And so any conversation where it is implied that that's not true and that we ourselves are responsible for contributing mm-hmm. <laughs> to that not being true right. is going to trip, you know, this, this backlash. And then, you know, I, I remember in 2012, I use this example in my classes all the time when Barack Obama was talking about corporate taxes mm-hmm. and he said, maybe you built a corporation from the ground up, in which case, great, good for you. You should be wealthy. But your corporation relied on roads. It relied on mm-hmm. education. It, right. And, right. He did, and he, then he said the magic words, you didn't build that. Right. And set aside any conversation about race if you can. I think there's a lot of fragility about that, right? Mm-hmm. If you if mm-hmm. you suggest that somebody didn't get where they got, or, or sorry, you suggest that somebody got where they got by luck or by mm-hmm. systems of oppression, or, right? There's just this like, you're not going to tell me I didn't do this myself. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's like the conversation that we had when um, you were talking about um, how when black people or minorities or any people of color don't like navigate the system and become really, really successful. The narrative is, well, you're just lazy. Mm-hmm. But when white people aren't successful, it's cause those Mexicans came in. And those it's the system. Im- it, it's yeah. the system. Sure. So if the system doesn't work for you, what makes you think it works for everybody else? Mm-hmm. And I think that's when I kind of like have my mama like, y'all just need to like get over it. Cause it's always somebody else's fault that white people aren't yes. successful, but mm-hmm. it's always our fault that we're not successful. And when, even when you think about <laughs> the thing with corporate taxes, like to me, and Dave, we talked about this in a couple of our sermons. Like when you look at companies, it could be companies like Walmart, anywhere where you have a CEO who makes goo gobs of money. You know, there shouldn't be a reason why the people who work in your place should not be able to afford the stuff that they that they sell. Mm-hmm. That's thing right. number one. Yeah. So then we get to this thing where usually white people are like, well, you know, we should cut uh, welfare and things like that because, you know, these lazy black people aren't doing what they need to be doing. Well, no, maybe if you pay them a livable wage, mm-hmm. you would not have the w- welfare really um, goes to help the companies more than it helps the people that it's given to. Have we talked mm-hmm. about diapers? Uh-uh. Have we talked about diapers? Uh-uh. This is my favorite. So I teach classes on family and mm-hmm. philosophy, and I teach classes on social and political philosophy. And diapers are my favorite example here, right? So diapers are not covered by welfare programs. Mm-hmm. Right? So, and they so are to high access, as hell. They are very expensive, and infants average 12 diapers a day. So. Wow. Right, but here's the thing. Most mm-hmm. licensed daycares will not accept cloth diapers because it's a biohazard. Mm-hmm. So your aid program doesn't cover diapers. Your aid program might also be tied to work now, right? Mm-hmm. So we'll see what happens in Kentucky, but this is your aid might be contingent on work. Right. But you can't go to work if you don't have daycare. You don't have daycare if you don't have diapers. You can't afford diapers if you don't have the job. You, if you don't have the job, you don't have, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's a, diapers. 
Right. Wow. Give people diapers. Wow. That makes that makes sense. So there's this narrative too, where it's like, oh, well, the people are lazy, and I'm like, no, you've you've for especially for parents, right. you've made going to work prohibitively expensive. They mm-hmm. simply cannot do it. And then, and but again, that the back to the to the to the original um, text that subsidizes the the corporate the corporate people who don't want to pay a livable wage. wage. Right. You mm-hmm. know, if you if you if I knew that I could go to a job, work forty hours a week, take care of my basic needs. I would not have to worry about, well, if, do I need food stamps? Do I need rental assistance? Mm-hmm. All this other stuff. But they don't see it that way because it's your fault that you're poor. Mm-hmm. Right. Not the systems. Right. And one of the things, so one of the things I was at the junior league the other day talking with um, Martez Files and Isabel uh, Rubio were also on the, on the panel. Um, and one of the things that I think is really, really important for white people to, to understand is the history of redlining. And then mm-hmm. when we talk about gentrification, cause you can't talk about one without the other. Right. So that, that before 1930, you'd had to, you'd had to put half of the price of a house down as a down payment in order to get a mortgage, like half the cost of the house. So very few people had houses after 1930, after the new deal, you had FHA loans and this, this massive government giveaway of subsidized loans to, um, well, 98% of that wealth went to white people between the, the between 1930 and 1960 or 70-something, anyway. But huge, billions and billions and millions of dollars. It was a massive affirmative action program that, that most white folks don't recognize. So when you look at average net worth, average net worth of a white household is 90 grand, average net worth of a black household is five grand. It's directly attributable to how red Generation, generational wealth, right? Yes, and, and because the house was the way you built wealth, right? Mm-hmm. And and so we have this massive economic inequality. But then you have people talk about you know affirmative action. When they say affirmative action, they only mean it towards black, black people. Yeah. And then and by the way, this is from. I mean, I got that info from the podcast. Seeing white, seeing white. <laughs> seeing so, white. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the funny thing is, mm-hmm. a lot of people who are opposed to affirmative action are women, even though we are also some of the primary beneficiaries mm-hmm. yeah. of affirmative wow. action programs. But we don't see it that right. Mm-hmm. So, um, especially white women. Like, I, I really right? hate when they talk about minority-owned businesses, yeah. and there's a white woman sitting up there grinning. I'm like, but you got a whole not minority husband over here. <laughs> <laughs> a whole yeah, ass right. not minority right. husband. Right. right. Well, yeah, yeah, and this is what, you know, we have good reason to believe that not only is it the case that we blame individual black people for not overcoming all of the infrastructure, and not only do we fail to recognize the ways that infrastructure contributed to the success of white people, mm-hmm. but it's also the case that when a black person is successful, we're more likely to attribute that to luck. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Than yeah. to talent or heart, which is just mm-hmm. like, there's no... Mm-hmm. There's no, there's no, there's no winning for us. So it's not that we, I mean, what's remarkable to me about that is we'll blame people for not overcoming the infrastructure, but if they somehow do manage to overcome the it infrastructure, was it was luck. then we just have like, well, they didn't actually do like, mm-hmm. let's not get carried away with the credit mm-hmm. here. I, I, I think I, I've told both of y'all about this one friend of mine who worked for a particular, um, um, uh, uh, political campaign last year. And he found out that he had been, uh, investigated because of his resume. Right. Like, he's got all this Ivy League stuff, mm-hmm. and, you know. And the conversation was from the the elder statesman was that I don't believe a black person could have a resume like this. Because, like, how fucking lucky can you be? Wow. Well, you know, it's wow. funny. You and I talked last time about the person who said, well, people are only voting for Barack Obama because he's black. Black right. people are going to... Which is, I have, like, did you seriously just accuse a president of being an affirmative action president? Like, right. yep. we affirmative yep. action hired a president? That's... Mm-hmm. 
Right. But, but the, the thing about that is that's only attributed to black people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, like, even if every black person on the, it, it, of voting age were to vote, there's still not enough of us to turn over mm-hmm. the white vote. So, so okay, so every black person voted for Barack Obama because he was black. We might give you that. But at the end of the day, some white people voted for him, too, and they aren't <laughs> black by no stretch of the imagination, you know. yeah. yeah. So mm-hmm. there, that, that's a lot. so so the 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 fragile part comes in when the fact where you know white people don't want to just kind of sit in that discomfort. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and that's and that's and that was that's kind of hard for people to do. Well, mm-hmm. so nobody wants to sit in discomfort, right? Um, and we're not really taught to very right. well. Mm-hmm. So because I. I because I teach philosophy, I spend a lot of time leaving people in a state of cognitive dissonance. Mm-hmm. And students are not trained. Having nothing to do with, like, social rights, students aren't taught to deal with cognitive dissonance. So mm-hmm. we educate on a model that's like, here's the answer, move on. We teach history on a model that's here's the answer, move on. <laughs> um, look, the Civil Rights Act got passed. Everybody just, that's a thing that happened. And then Barack Obama was president. The yeah, the end. end. Right. Now we're, now we're done. Um, well, I mean, we mm-hmm. only have 28 days to cover the whole history. So... Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's you gotta and not all those days are school days right. so you gotta you gotta condense um but yeah i think nobody is comfortable with it and i think in the case of race in particular you know until i had my son i did not talk comfortably about race um until i absolutely had to right. but because white people can navigate their days without having to mm-hmm. it's really hard to like force somebody to sit there and deal with something that they're not well taught. They're, so I'm trying to remember who's the one who has this great... Somebody made this comment that, like, basically we have stripped an entire generation of people of the language they needed mm-hmm. to yeah. figure out how to move through this. Um, yeah, no, sitting in discomforts. Yeah, I think we all have to do best. that sometimes. <laughs> Even me and my misogyny sometimes. Well, no, because, you know, the place that I have to sit in it the most, and we've talked about this, is the adoption process is so racist. Yeah. And Uh, so I I have this, there's no question, I mean, aside from the fact that I'm white and I'm the beneficiary of racism in that sense, right, my family was built on basically a system that deprives black women of social services Mm -hmm. and favors white women as parents. And and devalues the life of black children. And devalues the life of black children. Mm -hmm. It was just... Um, and so that's my my biggest gut punch. Like, I don't know how to. Yeah. <laughs> but the interesting thing is, I think the only reason I can sit in the discomfort there is because there's literally nothing else to do. Right. Well, and you you you've practiced it. I mean, that's, that's the true. other thing because because a lot of folks. I mean, it's it's like uh, my dad's a mental health counselor, but he talks about anxiety being uh, people with anxiety want to avoid the anxiety, which just really just reinforces the anxiety because mm-hmm. I can I know I can turn away from this. And not experience that, so I'm going to seek. I'm going to seek retreat. Mm-hmm. Whereas, if you confront the anxiety, it's like you're strengthening a muscle. So you can, if you're experienced, you can actually discomfort can be stimulating. <laughs> you know, like if you're a, a philosophy professor or yeah. <laughs> someone someone who likes you yeah. know uh, uh, the uh, intellectual people. Well, yeah, yeah you, you like the you like the struggle. Um, I, you know, the where I experience it the most is being clergy. Um, you know, I'm, I'm part of a denomination that is 94% white and um, is about to split over LGBTQ issues. And what's interesting in that in that whole process is that there, there are a lot of people who, who kind of feel like, well, if we just, na- now that we are very clear that a good, nearly half the church is not going to be accepting of gay folks, 
and that, that now we can be accepting, right? Now we're finally going to make this shift to saying we're going to be inclusive, et cetera. And um, uh, so congratulations. Now everyone can come be part of our church because we're, because, you know, like, and so I'm sitting in, in, in groups of what, what are largely white, straight folks, mostly men, um, of the, by the way, just in megachurch terms, and not all these are Methodist, of course, but of the 100 largest megachurches, 93 of them are run by white men. Uh, only one is run by a woman. Um, it, it's pretty wow. astonishing when we're you know, gathered in those groups. Um, I've, I've said a couple of times, and I think it makes some people think I'm irritating. Um, Piss some people off. Yeah, well, I mean, like, I'm just saying, look around the room, and who's not in, who's not in the room? And we're, we're talking about creating an inclusive church, and there's like two gay people here in a, in a room of 50. And there's like one black person, and we're saying, we're going to be inclusive now. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that, you know, we don't, we're, we're kneecapped. We, don't, we can't even start because of, and, and just even talking about that history is such a labor. And I feel like we're sort of that, in that same place in a lot of society where people are like, where a lot of white folks, well-intentioned white folks are like, yeah, we really want to change things, but, but we just, we don't, we're too fragile. We don't have the resilience. I ain't giving up ha- my seat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we don't have the resilience to, to handle the discomfort. Right. Absolutely. Well, look, so I think this puts us in a good place for a break. So when we come back, I want to talk about the differences between racism and prejudice. Because I'm tired of white people calling me racist. Like, it happens all the time. Like, we just give that a rest. But, and, but I also kind of want to frame it. And with your story, I want you to tell a little bit about your adoption story again okay. on the context of what happens when you're black as opposed to what happens to you white, and especially the devaluation of black babies and bodies. Mm-hmm. So we'll be back in a second. Do you have an active sex life? PrEP is a once-a-day pill that prevents HIV and is now available at the Livewell PrEP Clinic on the south side of the hub. PrEP is safe for men and women who have active sex lives and want to decrease their chances of contracting HIV. For more information about PrEP and the Living Well PrEP Clinic, call 205-324-9822 or go to www.gcpm.com and click on appointments. Or if you just need to get tested, call us. Okay, so we are back, and thank y'all for listening to Let Me Say This. Um, this is a really good conversation. I can't wait <laughs> <laughs> to get to the last segment because it's going to be fire and brimstone. But So for, for this segment, I want to talk about racism versus prejudice uh as i said earlier i get accused of being racist all the time by white people mm-hmm. that can't happen, can't happen. <laughs> it just doesn't exist and i think the reason that happens is because people don't understand and not just white people black people too i, I i've heard black people say well no we can be racist you absolutely cannot be racist because racism is more it's more than i don't like you because of Mm-hmm. It's like I don't like you, and I have an action that I can implement on you to show you how much I, have I don't. A system of power, behind right? Me. That I that I can show you. So let's talk 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 to first, Brian. Tell us about your experience of uh, like living vicariously through the life of a black woman who is giving up her child. Like, what did that look? like? Oh, in the hospital. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, um, so first of all, it's a very awkward way to meet somebody, right? <laughs> to be like, "Hello, it's so nice to meet you. Mm-hmm. How's labor working?" Out? <laughs> um, but I got there, and she was very uncomfortable, um, and not just in like labor uncomfortable. She her back was sore, and she wanted an extra pillow. And she said, but they said they don't have any, which I thought, like, that Whole hospital false to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that there's no pillow. Mm-hmm. So I went and asked, 
two nurses brought in pillows, propped her up, and asked me where I would like them. Which wow. I was like, well, I don't know. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> there's a whole person here. So wow. um, she had an asthma attack during labor and couldn't convince them she was having an asthma attack, even though I knew she had asthma. Like, I don't mm-hmm. know how the medical staff didn't know because right. I knew she had asthma. Wow. Um, and they kept telling her to take a deep breath. And she was that she you was, can't because you have asthma. She was remarkably calm, which because it, she was used to. In it. hindsight, mm-hmm. it makes me realize that she was like, "Yeah, this is how this is going to go." Um, mm-hmm. The hit, my son's oxygen alert went off, and that's when they realized that she was actually not breathing. So they brought in um, the respiratory therapist who who turned off her. Um, uh, what is it? What is it? The uh, the the epidural epidural thing mm-hmm. turned off her epidural to make sure that wasn't it to make sure it wasn't causing mm-hmm. like spinal problems, but didn't tell her that he turned it off and nobody remembered to turn it back on. So that's a thing that happened. And then which means was, she's in excruciating she's pain. She's in excruciating pain. And mm-hmm. then they they he put a mask on her to give her her asthma medicine through the mask, and literally had a hand on the mask and turned to me and said, "I know this is really scary." But everything's going to be okay. And I was, quite seriously, (laughs) wearing sweatpants and a t-shirt and sipping a Starbucks coffee on a couch. Like, that was, I was chilling on a couch, just, like, watching the whole thing play out. But his reassurances came to me, which was also remarkable. And then, uh, yeah, they didn't turn it back on. So she said she was in pain. They told her that she was not, that she was imagining it. Oh, my gosh. Um, and so it took me going out. Again, Julie, Julie's suggestion was like, this makes me think we just need, like, a posse of white women everywhere. A black right. woman is giving birth. <laughs> right. Because I was Holy in, smoke. I told Tony, I was in full, like, can I speak to the manager, please, mm-hmm. mode. So I, I said, she's really in pain. And they came back in, and they were like, oh, her epidural's at No apology, no. Which, I mean, she understood why they turned it off. Mm-hmm. But... But then listen to her when she says something. It's not, not all right, 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 right. Um, when he was born, her the adoption plan that she had filled out and that the hospital had said that she wanted to be the first one to hold him. He was born, and they immediately turned to me, mm. um, which had me like hot potato style. Like I was just like, no, 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 <laughs> like hands up, you can't, I can't do that. Um, the nurse said to me, "What's his name, Mom?" And I was like, "No, I did the." The literal mother is right here. Is is mm-hmm. sitting here in this room. Mm-hmm. Um, they uh, and you know also is still currently being sewn up. Like mm-hmm. all the attention. And what's interesting is I hear this. I hear that this happens, and this is one of the great roles for midwives and doulas, right? Is that mm-hmm. somebody needs to represent right. the birthing right. parent. But what was remarkable is that it wasn't that all the attention went to Ben at least half of the shifting attention came to me. Mm-hmm. And everybody's emotional because this is, oh, this is beautiful, this is adoption. Mm-hmm. But they're treating her like she's nothing in that. And I'm like, oh, she's actually the reason this beautiful, magical moment right. is right. happening yeah. for everybody. And then they didn't move her out of the room for hours. So she stayed in a room where the flo- they didn't clean the floor. Um when she went to the nursery, she and I were the two that had the wristbands to see him in the nursery. When she went to the nursery to see him, they said his mother has already been here, mm. which is just like it was brutal, vicious. What city was this in? Philadelphia. Um, and you know she she was just remarkable. She the next day I was gonna go visit her in the hospital room, and the 
the hospital social worker, our adoption social workers were wonderful. And the agency that I worked with, I really loved because they appoint one social worker for her and one for me. And there's just a wall between them. Like, mm. you, you, you know, there's, you want to avoid any kind of conflict when papers are getting signed. Right. And mm-hmm. also, like, there's somebody whose whole job is just to make sure she's okay. But the hospital social worker was not that person. <laughs> and the hospital social worker called me and said, I don't think she wants to see you. And I was like, oh, oh. I mean, it re- she and I had gotten along very well. Mm-hmm. And I could understand reasons that she wouldn't want to see me. Right. But it, it was still kind of very surprising to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and later she called and she said, are you not coming to the room today? And I said, I, I was given the impression that you did not want to see me. Wow. And she said, no, I didn't want to see that social worker. <laughs> oh. Talk about projection. Oh, man. <laughs> Talk about projection. Oh. So... Um, yeah, and she, you know, and when I did go to visit her, that's when she told me about going to the nursery and then, and and they did, I hate even using this phrase, they, she said like, I mean, they did let me in, but I'm mm-hmm. like, they should, it's he's your son, right, right, right. Um, but they know, expected you to be this asshole adoptive parent who treated the mother like shit, because I'm pretty sure that happens on a on a daily basis. It may happen. I don't know because I've mm-hmm. never been around. You know, for me, it was just for me. I still refer to her as the mother of my son. I mm-hmm. don't. But what's funny is people will say to me like, "Oh, but you're his mom." Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I, I have no internal conflict <laughs> about. But I'm not. He like, has oh, two moms. If only I could be a mom someday. Right. right. Um, but no, it was really. Um, you know, I wasn't having a baby. I was clearly the savior. Everybody in the hospital, like, I got there, and one of the right. nurses was like, "Oh, you're the adoptive mom." Mm-hmm. I'm like. Oh, all I had done was driven there. She's pushing a human out of her. Right, right, right. But, and there is this, There, the next morning, we were staying in a hospitality house associated with the hospital, and a woman was there. Her husband had had surgery, and, you know, we're fixing coffee, having, like, who are you here with? And I said, oh, my son was born yesterday, and I showed a picture, and she said, that's so great. They start out so cute. They just need somebody to show them the way. And it was just a really, um, and... The, my favorite part about this is because I'm a nice white lady, I was <laughs> totally caught off guard. Like, wow. right. I didn't know that this would they be thought a I was so cute. Oh they start gosh. out so cute. Yeah, oh, yeah, the right. fetishization of black babies. Yeah. Is yeah it's pretty yeah, severe. Yeah. Bizarre. People would say, like, where'd you get him? It's like, Target. <laughs> 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 and I know what they're saying right. is this right. general, did you go to Africa? Mm-hmm. Which right. like, where in Africa? What are you? <laughs> you know, Africa's a continent, not a country. Yeah. What what about the uh, the fact that you told me about you that you, in order to adopt a white child you had to be married? Oh, for lots of the agencies, yeah. So the agency that I ended up working with was my either my hundredth or my hundred and first call because I mm-hmm. am single by choice. I'm not independently wealthy. I did not look good to a lot of mm-hmm. agencies. Um, and so, yeah, there were several agencies that literally charged different fee structures based on the skin color of the child. Mm-hmm. So black children are cheaper, um, which is interesting because their argument for it is they're harder to adopt. So mm-hmm. we're trying to incentivize. But if they're harder to adopt, the agency should be investing more resources and mm-hmm. finding them a home. And so in theory, that would mean that it would cost more. Mm-hmm. Um and then, yeah, lots of agencies would not work with single parents unless the single parent was willing to adopt a black child. Mm. And I thought that was stunning wow. because there was like, we think every child deserves a two-parent household. Except for these. Unless Except for the, the child is black. Right. Because, you know, they're used In to that. In which case, and it really, there really is this attitude like, 
we'll just find anybody. And I know that's not true. I know mm-hmm. that I know people today who are waiting desperately mm-hmm. for a child. Like, mm-hmm. And so this is just a social attitude. Like, well, nobody wants a black child. Although, you know, maybe what they should start doing is marketing like everyone you meet will revere you as a savior <laughs> for this right, right. great and generous thing wow. you have done in the world. You have saved. That's yeah. the thing is like, it's not just white savior, like typical white savior. There's this literal narrative in people's heads that I saved this child mm-hmm. from a fate unspeakable. Because they thought I was so cute. They, and they just so need cute. some direction. And what's remarkable to me, and I do not disclose this, and I won't disclose this on the radio, but if you look at statistics, the people who are placing their children for adoption are not what people think is mm-hmm. ha- like he would have been fine. Mm-hmm. He would have mm-hmm. been totally fine. Like, and not just because somebody else would have adopted him. Mm-hmm. He would have been fine. Right. Mm-hmm. But nobody thinks that. And it's hard for me because I want to defend her. You know, I, f- I find myself in these conversations where I'm like, you know, you're talking about the mother of my child, right? Mm-hmm. That's while you're right. asking if she was on drugs. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> because only a drug addicted woman only would Only a drug mm-hmm. addicted woman would do such a thing. Um, and there was a lot of like, are you worried she'll change her mind? And I'm like, and parent her own child. Like, Mm -hmm, yes, mm -hmm. that would be heartbreaking to me. No question. But the way people frame it is that she would be taking him. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh no, he's hers. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) But but what you've explained are systems in which racism, you know, really, really exists. Like this wouldn't happen to a white child. This would not happen to a white mother, Mm -hmm. you know, and those are the things that, make the distinction between racism and prejudice or bias or whatever you want to call it such a a, a, a powerfully oppressive thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. So I, AL.com featured a picture of Ben and me once um, with a headline that said, this is what Birmingham looks like. Right. And I was Absolutely so not. angry. Yeah. And so I wrote them a letter and they published it. Mm-hmm. But the letter I wrote was like, no, no. If anybody looks at my family and sees like racial harmony, mm-hmm. they don't understand anything i mean they just don't understand how my family got built right and i said you know imagine that this had been a black man holding a young blonde girl Mm -hmm. would would we all feel warm and fuzzy in this moment or Mm -hmm. would you be asking follow and the comments were so the comments were like look it just so happens that most people who adopt are white Mm -hmm. and it just so happens (laughs) that most people who place children for adoption are black i'm like that's a weird that's weak like if that were genuine luck right yeah It'd be weird that it was tracking those mm-hmm. particular categories. Well, I think that's that. It just so happens, just so happens. is the is the framing that that people have that makes white privilege so hard to address. Yeah, like this is like the weather. No one built this. It just happened. Right, and yeah. then it's there's the double whammy because it's like nobody built it. It just happened. Mm-hmm. And if you point out that somebody did build it, it's like right, but not me. And you can't blame me for what they did. Exactly. Hundreds yeah. of years ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. So 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 comparing racism to uh prejudice like talk about Dave some of the 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 attributes of what racism is in other aspects I, mm-hmm. I just think that's a great example of what it looks like when you think about the adoption process especially when you got all these right-wing Christians like you shouldn't abort that baby you're killing this life but then you come and you put them on discount like it's about it's a bogo on black babies buy one get one free because they don't matter and they start out so cute they mm-hmm. start out so cute all they need is a little you know from me, who, by the way, people knew exactly one thing about, which was that I was white. Mm-hmm. That was right. Yeah. That was the That's information the they had. Yeah, yeah. Well, I lo- so I like to talk about uh, a taxonomy of racism <laughs> because I think um, you know, pe- 
there, there are certain, there are a lot of different elements that go into it. You've got the implicit bias piece, which is the socialization, the way that we're trained to see things and the stereotypes we have. And a lot of us who, even, even though we may not be consciously uh, racist, we have implicit bias that frames what we do. So you've got, you've got that piece. Um, you've got a piece which I, I, I like to think of sort of another axis, which is just ignorance and versus knowledge. Like how well do you know our history? How well do you know black culture? How do you know, well do you know whiteness? And you can be ignorant and have your heart in a good place um, and, you know, and, and you're further along than someone who, well, who could be more educated <laughs> and their heart's in the bad place, you know, right. um, and they have more explicit racism. So you've got the sort of psychological dimensions, and then you have the external structural dimensions, um, both, I think, in, I would say, relationally and then um, more abstractly, like politically. So like the 1901 Constitution, which, was, you know, was in the opening... A uh, few days of the convention, they said our purpose is to establish white supremacy in this state, and so you know you, it is still on the books. It's still on the book. Well, yeah. You, well, you trace it down, you see how these policies, which are supposedly colorblind, are actually weaponized. So, like the war on drugs, um, like I mentioned, redlining. Um, so, so there are these structural pieces, and I, I think that's what makes it hard for people when they say I'm not racist. What they mean is. I do not ascribe explicitly to a set of beliefs that says that black people are inferior to white people. Yeah. Now, implicitly, I might have some, you know, and that's what I think is so hard for people, for white folks, and why they react so negatively, because racist is such, a, is such a nasty word. It's like, it's worse to call someone a racist than for someone to actually be a racist. <laughs> yeah. You know, how dare you call me a racist? <laughs> she, you know? she said that in our last... Oh, yeah? <laughs> that exact same yeah. phrase. Yeah. She said well, that. being called racist yeah. is like the worst thing. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. But, you know, but then there's always... So what bothers me about it is, and I'm not going to get you in trouble, but what bothers me... start, Tony. <laughs> but what bothers me is, is the fact there's always this conversation or debate about what being racist really is. Mm -hmm. yeah. We never talk about that when we talk about anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. if, if the Jewish people say it's anti-Semitic, it's anti-Semitic. End of discussion. You know, don't say another word about it. But if black people say racism, well, you know, maybe they didn't mean it that way or maybe they were drunk. Mm -hmm. I do think we do that with sexism, though. Mm -hmm. Sexism. I think we argue about whether things are sexist. Oh yeah, we yeah, yeah we that's definitely do it with sexism. Yeah. We do we oh my god. So women yeah. saying this is sexist right. is not enough to Yeah, make it. sexism oh, consent. We're just being emotional. Yeah. Oh, that never happens. That never happens. <laughs> She's just emotional. But yeah. yeah. But people they 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 do that all the time. But again, these are the things that benefit white people that we don't argue about. If it benefits white people or white adjacent people, then we don't argue about it. Well, this mm -hmm. is the, and one of the, you know, you, you raised this question of the, the trial that just happened, right? That w one of the things we spend so much time arguing about is like, when somebody encounters a black person and says, I feared for my life, mm -hmm. the extension of credibility to that fear, right, mm -hmm. is that it, it's so well understood, right? There's right. just this, and I don't think it's dishonest when people do it. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I, I think it is this, I think... In many cases, it's implicit bias. In many cases, it's ex explicit sure. racism. Right. But I think what people what people fail to recognize is like a white woman walked into a black man's apartment, and it was an open question mm -hmm. whether she would be convicted of killing him, right? Because 
so widespread is the fear of black people and the like understanding that like oh that must be really scary to right. find yourself facing a black man right even if you are in his like, house what could you have done but kill him like right. there was right. nothing else to do and i think this about you know not just for me but any parent of a black child right i constantly have in my head right tamir was 12 tamir was 12 tamir, right. right it's just this kind of constant um panic and i think the conversation about, like, was the cop racist misses the point. Absolutely. Right? It just misses the point entirely. First of all, because everybody's hung up on, like, did he say the N-word while he shot them? Right. Because mm-hmm. if not, it mm-hmm. can't be racist. It can't be racist. But I think the really, I think the thing to focus on is the damning condemnation of our society that that there's this collective, like, yeah, that would be scary. Mm-hmm. That would be Right, if you take the Trayvon case, like yeah, yeah. that kid was walking. Right, right. Philando Castile mm-hmm. did every yeah. Every yeah. where was he? Uh, right. I don't, yeah. I, I don't know. Like, so, and I have to say, like I was one of those, as we call it in the community, hotel Negroes, who were like, well, if they just complied, they wouldn't have to worry about. Because I, you know, I even remember. Oh my God, I'm so ashamed of this. I remember even giving an example of one day. I had a friend that lived down 280, mm-hmm. uh, like near the movie theater. And I was coming back home one night, been down to drink and drunk as shit. Mm-hmm. And I'm coming up 280, drinking and had been drinking and I was driving. And I get to right there where that Wendy's is before mm-hmm. you get to the expressway. And this police officer pulled me over. Now, why he pulled me over, I don't know. I, 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 don't, I know I wasn't swerving. But the problem that he pulled me over for, he says I was straddling the line. At this time, they did not have distinct lanes mm-hmm. marked like the mm-hmm. tires that had rubbed it off i wasn't swerving but i wasn't in a lane so he pulled me up which is okay literally got out he goes mr walk you know i pulled you over i'm like uh i was probably speeding he goes no you were uh straddling the line i'm like there are no lines you don't see the line like how am i supposed to know what the line he goes okay well let me get your license and he runs my license he come back over and he goes have you been drinking i said yes sir i have he said what have you been drinking Beer at my buddy's house. How many beers have you had in the last hour? Three. He said, "Get out the car for for a minute." So I get out. I get out the car. He does. The, I do the whole little walk. Mm-hmm. Pass it. He goes, "Look, where do you live?" I told him where I live. He goes, "Don't let me catch you out here like this again." And I drove up. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. Now that was that was that was my story. Really <clears> that was my particular yeah. truth. Sure. I I got lucky mm-hmm. because again with Philando Castile. He did everything that they told him to do and still died. And it was part of a series of cases that felt to me like the universe was writing the script. Because yeah, for yeah. each person that got killed, there was like, well, what went wrong here? And so then there was a new case right. two weeks And then later, what went wrong here did, was... And, it was just, right. and so by the end of it, it was like, don't walk slowly, but don't walk quickly. Don't run, mm-hmm. but don't comply. Don't ask questions about why, but don't just not ask questions. Like, say yes, sir, and nod like you mean it. Mm-hmm. I mean... yeah. Yeah, it was surreal, and, and it, it really drove home the point that there is, there is, like, there is no way anyone is, and this is why the Amber Geiger case felt so crazy. Is there's no way anyone's ever going to be convicted because there's always justification because black men are scary. We're black gonna, men are scary. scary. Yeah. yeah, we're, we're going to take our last break and we'll come back in the last couple of minutes. We'll talk about the Amber Amber Geiger case because that is like that's hurting my heart right now. Mm-hmm. Like it really is, and and the foolishness that is. So we'll be back in a minute. Do you have an active sex life? PrEP is a once-a-day pill that prevents HIV and is now available at the Livewell PrEP Clinic on the south side of the hub. PrEP is safe for men and women who have active sex lives and want to decrease their chances of contracting HIV. 
For more information about PrEP and the Living Well PrEP Clinic, call 205-324-9822 or go to www.gcpham.com and click on appointments. Or if you just need to get tested, call us. So thank you for listening to Let Me Say This. This is our last segment. Um, however y'all are listening to this podcast, please be sure to rank us and um, write us a review. Send us a uh, message. Let me know what you think. Um, and if you have any uh, show suggestions, let us know. So so we're so we're going to end this up. And like I said, we had some breaking news like right before uh, we came on. And it really pissed me off even more about this whole Amber Geiger case. So if you don't know who Amber Geiger is, you need to get out of the, get your head out the sand. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so this is the case involving the white police officer, white female police officer who literally walked into a black man's apartment saw him, got scared, and shot and killed him. And people are trying to make excuses for her. That's what I think that's the first thing to bother me. That people mm-hmm. were trying to make excuses for her. Like well she thought this, she thought She that thought it was somebody she, she mm-hmm. thought it was her apartment, which I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, so she was breaking and entering. Just before anybody dies, just to be right. clear, like just, she'd right. already committed a crime. She had already committed a crime mm-hmm. that if she hadn't killed him, she wouldn't have been prosecuted for because oh She's just ditzy and, you know, she didn't know where she was going. Mm-hmm. The other thing about that trial, because I don't know if y'all remember this, but that for, like, two days, there was, like, they, it happened, and then, like, she was, like, like incognito for, like, two days. And I think those were the two days when the police were trying to figure out how to help her exonerate herself. And then they had no choice, because they, they almost had to force the DA to even, you know, to bring charges against her. Had she been a black woman, God forbid she had been a black man. Mm-hmm. Also... God forbid that he in his home had defended himself mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. white men do. Right? God forbid she had been the one that got, got hurt shot. in this. Mm-hmm. I could, and you know, I think Castle Doctrine would not mm-hmm. have covered. I that. think I, you know, I don't know, but I really feel like those two days they were trying to go through his background, see if there was anything that they could say. <clears throat> That would make it seem like she had a right to be there. Mm-hmm. Maybe they were going to say some loud noise that he was doing. I'm surprised they didn't drop any drugs. I in started mm-hmm. to say when didn't, he when she first got arrested. I think there was something. They about searched his apartment, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, tried, they tried to do to, everything yeah. to 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 say there was a reason for her being there, and there really wasn't. Although mm-hmm. wasn't she drunk and off duty? She was drunk and off duty. Which, so even if he had all the drugs in the world, right. like she wasn't being a police officer in that right. moment. Mm-hmm. There, there are so. So there are so many things wrong with that case. And we only, we're at day one. Like, yeah. there are so many things wrong with that case. So then you get to this, um, you get to, to the trial. And again, when black people do stuff, like if a black person had done what she had done, the narrative is always, well, you know, they did this in 2012 when they were three. And, you know, that means they're a bad person. Mm-hmm. You know, they... Mm-hmm. Uh, Put pee on a water gun when they were in fifth grade, and you know they're a terrible person. They were just trying to make make it look like she was just an innocent bystander, almost in the crime that she committed. And I'm like, mm-hmm. how are we doing this? Mm-hmm. Also, that it's still described as self defense. Like when you read it, it's still like, oh well. Like the whole story gets mm-hmm. told. It doesn't get framed as 
she murdered him. She walked into his apartment and killed him, mm-hmm. right? It's still framed as like, she mistakenly walked into, and on the one hand, I get the effort to tell the whole story. On the other mm-hmm. hand, the effort to tell the whole story is never extended in other cases. Right. Never. Right? You just mm-hmm. go for the bullet points in other cases. So even the fact that we want to like make sure that we're very clear that like this wasn't with malicious intent, mm-hmm. this wasn't, and like that's a... That's a kind of charitable interpretation that right. never gets extended. I, and I think I think it's that grace that gets extended to her that makes the, the made the hug, et cetera, so controversial. Oh, oh is God. That, God. Is because there's, and so actually this is one of the places where I think fiction does a really good job helping people g- mm-hmm. get uncomfortable, like um, uh, The Hate You Give, the story, uh, yes. which is a great Oh my gosh, it's such a good book. book. And I didn't know what it was when I rented it from the library. <laughs> and, and yeah. That was a... That was a Oh yeah. Well, and I I love the way that she she kind of described this that the people involved in these in these things are morally complicated people. Mm-hmm. So it's not like anyone's pure, right. right? So this you know this guy. So yeah, he had he had connections with people who were doing drugs, and he was you know possibly had sold drugs at some point. But does that mean he gets to die? Does that mean that, that his death is, is is somehow justified? And it's like if he's white, he gets his his whole story matters. Mm-hmm. If he's black, his whole story doesn't matter. If he's white, he could literally get caught fucking somebody behind a dumpster. I was just thinking, right. and, and, he's and, got such a bright future. And then, yeah, he has such a bright future. Why would right. we? Why would we ruin his future over right. him raping a woman? Exactly. Seriously? Yeah. Right. Like I want to hear somebody say that about a black person. Mm-hmm. The kid in Louisiana, you know, he was so rich that he didn't really even realize that running over five people while you're shitty face drunk was a crime because he suffered from uh, affluenza. Oh, affluenza. Yes. Oh, the the shit that, that white like it, it piss, like really mm-hmm. it pisses me off. The shit that white people get away Absolutely. with in this country is just incredible. Yeah, and that, and that's what. So getting back to white <laughs> white privilege, it's the inability to see that that so many yeah. white folks have. Like I have a good mm-hmm. friend who's a runner, and she wrote this beautiful thing. She almost never talks about politics or anything like that, mm. but she, I can't. So here's the real sad sentence. <laughs> I can't remember which black person had just been killed. Mm-hmm. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, so many. Right, yeah. But an unarmed yeah. black man had just been killed. Mm-hmm. Basically, wrong place, wrong time. And black. And black. And she wrote this thing about being a runner. And she said, so here's, she said, my life has included countless instances of trespassing. I've jumped over mm-hmm. fences. I run through people's backyards. Mm-hmm. I stop and go to the bathroom if I have to stop and go to the bathroom. Right? Like, mm-hmm. here's, and she was like, and I, Never once have I been, and she said, like, you know, I'm a female runner, so there are times I'm afraid for my safety, but not Mm -hmm. because someone will think that I'm doing something inappropriate. And she said, what makes this remarkable to me is I'm actually breaking laws, Mm -hmm. right? Like, I'm actually doing things Mm -hmm. that are problematic and that are violations of property rights and also, but nobody ever. And the comments, it was fascinating because the comments that she got were efforts to explain it in a way that didn't appeal to her being a white woman. Wow. So yeah, the right. comments that she got mm-hmm. were like, well, no, I think they can just, you know, they can see your face or they can, mm-hmm. they know it's you or they, you know, just on and on and on. There's a hashtag on Twitter called crimeing while white. <laughs> and it's white people. Saying <laughs> things they got away they, with. They got away with mm-hmm. and they know mm-hmm. they only got away with it because they're white. And I think for people who don't see white privilege, like for you not to see this, it's kind of like intellectually dishonest. Mm-hmm. Like you have to be able to say this isn't right, or that wouldn't have happened if this person had another identity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and and, and it, it's 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 incredible. Like it's it's absolutely I mean, incredible. I think like the most glaring one to me is I don't understand how anybody 
like, hate him, whatever. I don't understand how anybody doesn't believe that if Barack Obama did the things Donald Trump has done, mm-hmm. Girl. that he would be described as anything short of a thug. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And I don't, and, and, and I don't, I think the thing that bothers me about an unwillingness to recognize that is I'm not asking you to dislike Donald Trump. Right. 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 I mean, I am separately, not because of this <laughs> argument, but like, right. I want you to admit where you, I want to admit your bias towards him. You can think whatever you want to think Mm -hmm. about Donald Trump. Just know that if Barack Obama had said that he grabs a woman's genitals Mm -hmm. whenever he feels like it, we would be talking about him. We would be using Because you're rich and they like it. We would Mm -hmm. be using animal language to describe him. He would be dehumanized immediately. Mm -hmm. Just, I mean, just the shit show that's been the presidency for the last two years. I mean, Mm my, can y'all. Like, I'm a little older than y'all, so I remember the tail end of the Nixon thing. Tell us, Grandfather Jones. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I remember the end, I remember the end of it. It has nothing on this. Yeah, yeah. Like, absolutely nothing. Like, what else but white privilege gives you the ability to have a whole two-year investigation about you seeking help from a foreign country to after the report, the day after the report is filed. Following a presidency where people were very concerned that there weren't appropriate American sentiments or right. even American yeah. origins. Oh, that, yeah, right, yeah, right, yeah, right, yeah, right. Yeah. So the day after the mother was, you literally go and ask another country for help. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and people are, deb- and we are debating this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like this is, this is like up for debate. Right. You got the text messages, you got the witnesses, and this is up for debate. White people, y'all got to do better. Y'all, y'all have just got to do better. I do not disagree. <laughs> I, just don't, I don't understand. Like, how is this even a debate? Like, we are debating this as a country. Mm-hmm. So one of the things, so I'm not not to psychologize everything, but I think it's interesting because I've been I've been doing uh, John Gottman's stuff. No, I want you to psychologize because I want to know well, what yeah. the psychology behind this is. Well, so, like, when, when people get defensive... Um, He's talking about marriage, and he says there's like four there's four things that basically predict um, stonewalling is one of them. It's when your your heart rate gets above a certain beats, number of beats per minute, and you essentially just say I'm going to ignore whatever's come at me and pretend it doesn't exist. And I think I think stonewalling is a very common reaction. Defensiveness is another one, which is when it's not my fault, it's your fault. I'm going to turn it around and put it on you. Uh, criticizing, which is where you attack somebody's character, and then contempt, which is like sneering, sarcasm, eye rolling everything you get on the internet. So the, the, these four kind of emotional reactions predict the end of a, the end of a relationship. Right. And it's not just marriage, it's friendships and et cetera. But, um, uh, it, it's, it's a physiological response. And I think we are not, we are, we are, we seek comfort. As you said, we were, we were able to avoid places where we're made uncomfortable. And so we don't build up the resilience to be able to, to sit with those emotions and people, people will deny crazy stuff. Like I've heard, well, I've been in arguments where I've denied, like with, with my wife, where I've denied stupid stuff. Like, like the, the sky is green. I mean, you know, what, whatever happens to be. And it's like, what, where is this coming from? And it, it is, the, it is, again, I'm not, I'm not excusing it, but it is a physiological response. Emotions are felt biologically. Right. And um, I, I'm not saying that we all just need to practice mindfulness meditation, though it probably wouldn't hurt. I think, um, I, I, I think somehow in our public discourse and when white folks are talking to white folks and it's frustrating, but you have to be able to soothe the other person's feelings. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll, I'll admit I'm guilty of it. You start with saying someone's fragile, they're going to get defensive. Right. It's true. 
<laughs> but it doesn't help us get to where we need to get. And, and I don't know, it's, it's it, on the one hand, I just, I want people to be tougher, like just suck it up and deal on, on the other hand, I know that in my own, in my own interactions with folks, I have to, I have to be gentle sometimes. And sometimes I got to kick somebody's ass, mm-hmm. but, but there's, <laughs> yeah, but how, I think that's part but, of the frustration. But, but, but how, how does that manifest itself or how does that play out? When you are literally looking at the entire country lying your ass off every fucking day. Yeah, yeah, there's right. um this will not answer that question, but I, <laughs> keep, I there's some female author and I wish I could remember who and I want to say Sylvia Plath, but that doesn't sound right to me now. Who has this great quote that's we must compensate the man for the loss of his gun. Yeah, and it's uh, exactly it's like. Listen, if you're and and I have mm-hmm. a friend who's a political science professor who talks about this with the monuments debate a lot. Mm-hmm. Is she has like the monuments have to come down. There's no question mm-hmm. the monuments have to come down, but she says but every time I think it, I think you must compensate the man for the loss of it. Like if you're going to go anywhere here, you're going to have to have this kind of yeah. soothing like trade-off right. and mm-hmm. um you kind of protect the ego. Mm-hmm. And, it, and while it's, it's happening. Sometimes it just feels morally repugnant to do you Yeah. Know, to, to do. Uh, I, I, yeah, I don't have a good, I don't have a good answer for that either. But, you know, but, but again, like, so now, you know, she's been sentenced, the key witness 10 years, 10 years, mm-hmm. 10 years, to 10 years, walked in somebody's, which is, I would be willing to bet less than what he would have been sentenced to if he had defended himself in that moment. Oh, mm-hmm. dead ass. You know, there's, there was a, because he would have killed a police officer. So mm-hmm. I was, right. I, yeah, I was looking, I was looking uh, at something on Facebook last night and, um, this, one of my friends sent me this um, this video, and it told the video said to Google. I cannot think of the boy's name now, but it was these three boys who got sentenced. One guy got he's been in jail for fifteen years now. He got eleven life sentences. Nobody died, and nobody was hurt. Oh, mm. and there's the case I just saw where the guy just got released. He'd stolen fifty dollars and twenty five mm-hmm. cents worth of something. Mm-hmm. Think about the woman in Florida mm-hmm. who shot her her gun in the air. Where you know, stand your ground didn't work. She didn't even shoot nobody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so so like for people to say that white privilege doesn't exist, and I like, how do you even say this is okay punishment? Right. Like, how do you how do you say this is okay punishment? The little boy got sentenced to ten days in jail for oversleeping for jury duty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This would never happen to white people, mm-hmm. never. But you know, but we're just supposed to sit here and act like it's okay. And I and I think that's the problem that I have. And that's a come. <clears throat> I used to kind of shy away from talking about race, but I realized that if I have to make people uncomfortable. I'm gonna do it because I'm fucking uncomfortable every every That's day. It's really hard for me to imagine you <laughs> away. Oh my god! Yeah, I as I as I've gotten older, I've really morphed into like a different person than I was younger. Well, and I think part of that's self differentiation. I mean, your your emotions are yours, and they can have theirs. Yeah, I, I think that's. I th- I told you the story about when I was in in jury pool, and there was someone who started talking about Muslims, and I was like, man, this is making me really uncomfortable because he was, you know, he learned I was a pastor. He said, thought he could say some. Nasty yeah. things, and I, then I thought, well, you know, why? Why do I have to be uncomfortable? He should be uncomfortable. Yeah. And so I just responded the way I would. Resp- I mean, I was just honest. Right. And I'm not in a mean way, I don't think, but I just was very honest, and I and it definitely made him uncomfortable. But I think that's exactly right. You there's there's a sense of yourself like I don't need to have this person's emotions for them. I love this question. I'm gonna use that a mm-hmm. lot. I love the like, why should I have to be uncomfortable? Because I <laughs> yeah. I yeah. think this happens a lot. Um, 
you know, I, if you don't see me with my child, you don't know that I'm not just a random white person. And I bet people say some real fucked up shit around you. There are a lot of conversations (laughs) where I have like, you're just assuming Mm -hmm. that I'm kind of one of you in this moment in a strange way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And I do think it's hard. You know, we've talked about this. Like I, I, I I do not fault my parents for this. And I also don't fault the South. I don't, but, but Mm -hmm. you know, I was raised in a a small rural, right? Civility is king. Mm -hmm. And you don't like whatever else is true. You're civil. Fuck that. And so, <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's. I think it. You know, it's it's really hard for me. And and really, it's been pretty recent. And it takes kind of me. It takes actually tripping my maternal rage. Mm-hmm. So it's still the case that if it's like an abstract discussion that I don't actually feel personally, right. I respond sometimes, but not always. Mm-hmm. And it is because I have like, oh. Mm-hmm. What's going to, and especially in my professional context, like when students say various things, there's like, what's going to happen if I mm-hmm, mm-hmm. say your mama to you the way that I would like to respond right. to you in this moment. Yeah. Um, but, oh, I love that. Like, why should I be uncomfortable? Oh, I love yeah. it. I love it. I love but, but, it. but, you know, but, 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 the, you know, with him is why should I be uncomfortable with me? I'm, a, I just, my daily life is the day of uncomfort. Right. You know, mm-hmm. when I think about the spaces that I go into, and people are looking at me like, what are you doing here? Is he one of the good ones? Like, what's that in his backpack? Mm-hmm. You know, I get that every time I go places. You know, and then, you know, this is what I got when I was younger. I always got, oh, he's one of the cool ones. Yeah. You know, he's wow. one of the, wow. he, and it was also, he was the, he was the smart one. Mm-hmm. So, like, I always. There can only be the one. There can only be the, because there's not that much luck going on. Yeah. You know, right, I was right. the lucky one, you know. And but that's but that's my life and that's my reality and and I refuse to let the amount of privilege that I have gained mm-hmm. blind me to that because there are a lot of black people who don't understand that something that wealth I have property you know I have a family you know I have a good job that's a privilege that a lot of people don't get mm-hmm. and I'm not gonna say you know. I work myself up and blah, 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 and the rest of y'all can do it too because that sounds like white people telling us that just because, you know, we didn't fix racism, it's our fault that it still exists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. This is not, this is not about, I just, I'm, I am thinking about the, like, I'm uncomfortable all the time. So it's not true of me that I'm uncomfortable all the time, but I have kind of a different experience, right, which is why I'm going to lean into this, like, <laughs> why should I be uncomfortable, <laughs> is that I'm a woman in academia, and there's mm-hmm. a fair bit mm-hmm. about this, right? So my day is interrupted more frequently than my male colleagues. I'm asked for more special favors. I'm criticized more harshly when I don't say yes to the special. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because even when it's happening, I always think, like, name the male professor you would have asked that of. Right. Name the male professor you would have said that to. Name the male professor. Mm-hmm. But I never say it because there's, like, I don't want the student to get one of the student. And I never ask people to leave mm-hmm. my office, even if I need them to get out of my office so I can get work done. And I, I, I do frequently but, have like... But even in academia, you're a woman. I, and yeah. you you experience a level of discomfort. We had this conversation, and actually we talked about it a little bit um, when I was at that summit, about how when black men get on elevators, people automatically oh, yeah. kind of like... The quest love person. thing. Yeah, yeah. Got onto you know, I can't tell you the times that I walk down the street, and I don't think I'm very menacing. I'm a little pudgy now, but I don't think I've ever been menacing. But, you know, women would, women would clutch, white women would clutch their purses. You know, mm-hmm. black women may move on the other side, depending on what I got on, but white women always clutch their purse, like, just in case. I'm mm-hmm. about to be able to get out of here. But it's one of those things where part of it... 
I can see the racism part in it, but I also see the protecting myself because I'm a woman and I may be uh, attacked or sure. assaulted by this man because men are pigs. Right. You know, in in this in this in this that like how like where do you, where where does she err on this? And mm-hmm. I say err on the side of caution. Mm-hmm. You know what's interesting to me is I think that one of the ways we see the like racism and sexism nightmare combination is that Oh my god. I think if a man I think if a white man is walking down the street I do I mean, you know, I think I have implicit bias too, so I wanna I wanna be clear about that. But I do think that like I might be more responsive to what that person is wearing. Mm-hmm. I might be more responsive to features that are like additional cl- clues. Yeah. Whereas somebody might immediately respond to black men no matter what they're wearing. And part of what makes that shocking to me in the context of this conversation is I have like the president of the United States mm-hmm. rendered right. women physically unsafe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. 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 So there's no like yeah. there's no reason to think like, oh well, oh, he's a white guy. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> when, I, I want to something you, you said about leaning into leaning into that. I, I realized, I mean, as I'm as I'm saying it, that part of my being able to say, "Why should I be uncomfortable? I'm a white guy. Yeah. Why, why do I have to be uncomfortable ever?" ever. <laughs> <laughs> you know? that, that, but, so, so one of the, one of my clearest um, experiences of being made aware of my own privilege was was we we interview clergy as clergy are coming in for ordination, and um, I've always been in favor of having women clergy. And I was asking. Um, I was asking uh, a woman, uh, uh, if someone challenges you about your ministry, how, how do you respond? And I was really hoping that she would, like, quote the Bible. She would go to talk about Deborah or Lydia or all, any of the women leaders in the church. And she just, well, she was like, well, I just use my example. And so when she left, you know, again, women in the group that I'm talking to, I said, I was just kind of disappointed she didn't, you know, go to the Bible, defend herself. And one of the women said, well, we've already know that's useless. Like, why, why would she do that? I was like, oh, okay. Well, I, and then, and then it, it just, I was like, that, that was my blindness, my privilege. Yeah. And then, then I realized I'm only asking the women that. Mm. When I really need to be asking the men that. You know, why, how would, how you, would defend you defend a woman? a woman, someone saying women shouldn't be in ministry? How, what, how, do you, how would you go to bat? And, and I was like, dang. You know, so like even when I'm trying to, to do and I and so I also get the frustration that some white folks have the fragility even when I'm trying I screw up yeah and I think that almost needs to be like the bumper sticker that we're made aware of <laughs> even like, when I'm trying even when I'm trying I screw yeah. up so that when it happens I don't feel devastated by right. it yeah. right. you know it's like it's okay because you're trying you know not not to excuse it just but you know it's just you're aware now you know better you do better yada yada but it's I, I think there's a level of humility um, that we're we're just not comfortable taking on. Like, I'm going to screw up and just saying it's it's okay. When I interviewed for jobs the first time in 2012, almost every department I interviewed with asked me how I would teach feminist philosophy. And I don't work in feminist philosophy. I wouldn't. And the job ad didn't say feminist philosophy and nothing in my... Wow. And I had a like, <laughs> hmm, wonder why you're asking me right, right. these questions. Because you have to speak for all women. I, right? wow. and they, that's, they would say, like, how would you teach a, fem- a course in feminism? I was like, I, I, wouldn't. I wouldn't. That's not mm-hmm. my training. Mm-hmm. I can see why you think I would. <laughs> <laughs> but with the lady status and all. <laughs> but. Well, look, oh, I think man. that brings us to a close. Uh, this has been fun. We must do this again. <laughs> <laughs> we absolutely must do this again. 
Uh, y'all got anything you want to say before any reading recommendations for white people out there listening? I always tell people they've got to read Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria. I That's going to be my next one. I need always, to read that. I haven't always, read that one always, yet. always. Yeah. It's like completely life-changing. Mm-hmm. I read Between the World and Me yeah. and mm-hmm. cried when I finished because powerful. it... How do you think my intro kids are going to like it? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's gonna be super. I think, yeah, yeah. yeah they, they, I, they, I don't know. It's, it's, that's it's a hard book. It's hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really a hard book. Mm-hmm. Um, and and as I read it, you know, my life, my upbringing wasn't like his, so I even had to recognize the amount of privilege that I had over him, even as another black man mm-hmm. navigating through this world. But I mean, a lot of the experiences he had were some of the same experiences that I had, especially when it came to education. Mm-hmm. Like how he said, like you know, if you don't make it in the streets, the streets to get you then. If you don't make it educated, the streets to get you later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, that, that was one of these one of my uh, more poignant uh, moments of recognizing racism in high school. When I was in the ninth grade, they started the whole Scholars Bowl or Queers Bowl tournaments. I don't know what they call it now. Academic Bowls. Mm-hmm. You know, like the Queers. Like, who knew the most right. nonsensical shit? Mm-hmm. And I had made the, uh, the the school's team, like, from my freshman year. So my junior year, I was the captain. I was that smart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, even the valedictorian can mess with me with mindless chatter. <laughs> and uh, Hewitt Trussell, they had they had just built a school. It's not even the school that they have now because I think they tore down that school because I was in school ages ago. But they had, Hewitt Trussell had just built a new school, and they, we had our Western Division Championship there. So for some reason at that particular tournament, they decided to take the, the teams from five people down to four. So they had called for the teams to come up to the stage. And um, at that time, Pleasant Grove High School, 90% white, you know, 10% black, all poor, all bust in and bust out before sundown. So three of my team members were on the on the, on the the stage. And this lady gets on the mic. She goes, we need for Pleasant Grove's uh, captain to come to the floor. So I ran my black ass up there like, boop, 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 boop. She looked at me. She goes, where do you think you're going? I said, wow. I said, I'm I'm Pleasant Grove's captain. She looked at the audience. She goes, Mr. Granlin, is this your captain? Like, why wow. would I be lying about being wow. the captain in the <laughs> academic wow. bowl? Yeah. And at that point, that was the point when I realized that the world is always going to see me differently. Mm. Mm. Like, like, why would you? She didn't question anybody else. The rest of the people just got up there. She literally looked at me and I'm like, where do you think you're going? I'm like, I'm that's a girl's captain. That Miss, can't be that right. That can't wow. be right. Wow. That absolutely See, cannot be right. I could be right. being like, are you aware that you're black? <laughs> <laughs> Were you aware? <laughs> this, yeah, this ain't wow. one of them black city schools, you know. <laughs> but I mean, but that's when I realized I was always going to be differently that. And, and you know, and, the, and this is a, a narrative that we have kind of embodied, even though it's unfair. But as black people, we always have to be better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, we've uh, there have been other like work incidences when I've been shown that mm-hmm. twice as good for half the respect. Yeah, and half mm-hmm. the money sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, I, that's happened to me a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, um, in, even in, in my work life. But you know, I don't know how we're gonna fix it, but we're never gonna fix it if we don't talk about it. So, truth. there's one other reading because you said fiction can really help here. Mm-hmm. Little fires everywhere. Oh, it's phenomenal. And it's a case of adoption where a white family adopts a Chinese baby 
and the mother was in a state of genuine trauma at the oh, time wow. she agreed to it. Uh-huh. And then she heals herself and wants the baby. Mm-hmm. Um, and the trial, the book isn't even, it's like a side part of the story, mm-hmm. but it captures so beautifully the like, everybody just reflexively assumes that the white family is the best mm-hmm. yeah. option for this child. And it captures the experience of the attorney who himself is Chinese trying to show like, wow. No, there are genuine differences in the upbringing of mm-hmm. this. So oh, yeah. little fires yeah. everywhere. Wow. Okay, cool. And the podcast, of course, seeing white. Oh yeah, seeing white. Man, it's phenomenal. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's from a podcast called Seen on Radio. I'll put the link in the uh, in the description, but that's really something people should check out. Mm-hmm. Well, look, so that's it for us today. We had a long podcast today. <laughs> 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 but I'll catch y'all next week or in a couple of weeks, depending on what my schedule looks like. And again, thanks for listening. Let me say this. We'll check out later. Peace.